Hey, welcome back to the show. Today, we talk with Dr. Dr. Greg Bataro. I think I'm saying his last name right, but it was a very, very good interview. We had a great conversation about mental health. Um, we also dig a little bit into philosophy and personalism. Um, Dr. Greg's a real deal. He knows a lot um, about the brain. And um, yeah, this episode is really close to home for me. I really enjoyed his book, The Mindful Catholic. We talk about that book. Um, talk about mindfulness and the difference between mindfulness and spirituality and go into a lot of things about, um, you know, the part of your brain that's wired to um, protect you from from danger that that sometimes overworks and and gets you all anxious and, and freaking out. Anyways, um, so today's show is brought to you by me. So you can support the show at uh, patreon.com slash the show where you can um, get access to the guests before they come on and submit questions. You can get all sorts of exclusive content um, behind the scenes, um, early access to live recordings. You can be on the show. Speaking of being on the show, you can leave me a voicemail. I would love for you to do this every now and then we record episodes where I answer voicemails or just play them on on the episode. Um, You can leave me a voicemail at 817-527-1423. Ask a question, introduce yourself, Whatever, whatever you want to do, that's your uh, three minutes of fame or just three minutes of being on the show. Would love to hear from you. Uh, last thing is, would you like a hug for your brain? Well, that's what um, Four Sigmatic, they sell hugs for your brain. Um, the people who know me, people in my life know that I love, I'm just really into mushrooms, um, especially uh, mushrooms to support you know, memory and focus or mushrooms to support um, sleep. And there are a few mushrooms in particular. These are um, natural food supplements that have been shown to support, for instance, lion's mane, shown to support uh, um, protecting your your brain, but also helping with focus and memory and attention. And so if you're, for instance, trying to cut back coffee or trying to cut coffee cold turkey or drinking too much of it, I highly suggest and often suggest um, lion's mane mushroom, um, just like this powder you put in hot water, or you could mix with honey or um, milk or something like that. Um, also, I've been um, experimenting with reishi, which is a different mushroom that helps with uh, relaxation. They also have cordyceps, which um, cordyceps helps with the production of ATP and energy in your body. Uh, helps you know give you a little little bit of a some body energies, a little bit little little pep in your step. Highly recommend Four Sigmatic, and I have recommended them for years now. And I have acquired an affiliate code that will give you 10% off and it will help support the show. So you get to try some mushroom drink, you get to support the show and you get 10% off. And so you can use the offer code holy shroom, all one word at checkout, you get 10% off whatever you try. Um, there's links in the show notes. Uh, and just to bring this all the way back around to Dr. Dr. Greg, there are some amazing show notes on this episode. I, I, um, as much as I can, I just grab the show notes um, using this bookmarklet in my Safari browser. Just grab things while we're talking. It's pretty easy to just you know grab different links as we're speaking and put them in the show notes. So tons of amazing things on the show notes. Um, you can see the show notes at uh, fireside.fm. Oh, no, no. The show.fireside.fm um, or on my website, edmundmitchell.com. It is with great pleasure that I bring you this um, 
a well a well needed message uh, for Dr. Greg in a conversation that uh, I hope I hope to um, yeah just to promote more. I mean, we need to talk about our brains a little more, mental health, just being healthy in general and happy. So I hope you um, appreciate this interview and let me know what you think. Thanks. You staying home tonight? I hadn't planned on it. No. Plan on it. Uh, hey, no, I'll lighten up the Wi-Fi here. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Can you hear me? Okay? How's it going? Yeah, I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Normally, there's like some level of um, <laughs> adjusting things that happens, but this sounds really good. Good. Yeah, you sound loud and clear. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, well, thanks for taking the time. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we finally connected here. I know I've been, you know, I know I'm sorry. I've been, I've been dragging the ball on, on getting back to you, but I've been thinking about thinking about this for a long time. But did, did, was there an auto responder? Did you just have a baby? Yes, I had a, yeah, we just had a baby. <laughs> I think you have to valid, a valid reason there for not, that's, you know, that's true. I need to be, I need to be easier on myself. There's some life happening there. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It, we had our, our first girl. So oh, beautiful. Yeah, so that's exciting. Do you have kids? I do. Yeah, I have four. I have uh, two boys and two girls. Oh wow, that's kind of an even spread. That's nice. That must be really nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's an adventure. It's a, it's a boy girl boy girl. So you see all sorts of dynamics coming out. Oh wow. Are you? Do, did you grow up in a big family? Um, I grew up with two two younger brothers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See, I just had one sister. We're recording, by the way. I'm I'm pretty informal with this. Okay, yeah, that's cool. So you so you had two younger brothers? Yep, two younger brothers. Okay. Okay. Yeah, see I'm I'm not used to the big family. Like I want a big family, but I'm just I'm not used to it. It was just me and my sister for most of my life. And so that that it's interesting now seeing like the mob of our four boys that are all somehow less than 9 months apart. Um, oh sweet! Wait, wait. wait well, no, not up. not literally, not, not literally, but they are very close. I mean, they're very, very close in age. So they're just a mob. They're just a a single thinking unit that just kind of like destroys our house. <laughs> That's funny. So we're, how how close are they? Oh man, re- pr- pretty much all like within nine months to a year apart. So, um, yeah, we have like six, five, four, and almost. Almost three. Wow, um, that's awesome. So you took a little break and then uh, you jumped back in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. My Ours are actually four, three, two, and seven months. Wow, that's great. So it's it's pretty crazy. It's it's definitely a different a different world. It is. Yeah, you know, like have all the kids while you're young, you know, just like get them all out of the way. Just, yeah. just <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, right? <laughs> I, I just you know I my my wife can't stand can't stay, uh, stand when I says it, say this but uh, basically you know I just feel like every kid every every year moving forward and every new experience it's just life is getting better yeah yeah like that's I true. can't I can't imagine not doing this like yeah. I yeah like, I'm like babe I think we're just gonna keep having kids like, for, <laughs> for as long as we can yeah yeah it's Man. just I just life is awesome. Yeah. So where so where are you from? Where did you grow? You, right now you're where are you right now? Are you in Connecticut right now? 
Yeah, I'm in Connecticut. Okay, okay, I grew okay. up in Connecticut, and then um, I, I kind of traveled around a bit and took my adventure took me everywhere, and then uh, and then I kind of landed back here. Okay, sort of inadvertently, but here I am. So you grew up in Connecticut. Where'd you go to? Where'd you go? Did you go to? Obviously, you went to college. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I started at Boston College for a year, yeah, and then um, I, that's when I kind of came back to my faith and. Uh, had my, my parents had divorced before I left for college and I was like, it was a really messy year for me. Yeah. And, um, but when I was there, I was, I was really blessed to have some philosophy with Peter Kreeft, who is just an amazing philosopher and an awesome teacher, um, and helped kind of straighten me out a bit. And then I, uh, I knew my faith was really important. I had to pursue that as the highest priority. And so I, to save my soul where I was at was you know, I could not really live in that environment and in just a regular university environment with all the stuff going on around me without yeah. participating too much in it. And so, um, so I transferred, uh, and I, and I went to Steubenville Franciscan university. Of Steubenville. Oh, wow. I don't know how I missed that. Dang. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my alma mater too as well. Oh, sweet. That's great. Awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. So I graduated there in Oh three. Okay, cool. 2011. Um, and oh, I cool. and I also similar. Um, I also went. Uh, my dad and I toured Boston College's campus because that was one of the universities I got into. Um, and I ended up going to Georgia Tech, but kind of similar story. I ended up ended up transferring to Franciscan. So I'm a tra- oh, I'm a transfer as well. Nice. So you you said you were kind of far from your faith. Were your parents Catholic? Yeah, we grew up Catholic. It was it was nominal. Um, but we were more sort of Italian and, and family oriented than, uh, than, you know, necessarily religious. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, I think that's why I was kind of thrown for a loop when they got divorced. It was kind of like the foundation of everything that I'd been raised on as the highest priority Yeah. was, was kind of cracked. And, um, and then, so then I realized that, you know, really going up was the only way to go Yeah. and you can't, you know, from family. So, so going to religion was in my faith was, was the only way I could actually, make more sense than what I had with the family. Man, and you just, I mean, to, I mean, transferring is a scary thing to be able to just like pick up and move. And, and what, did your major change? Like, did your career path, like what you were thinking about your career path kind of change? Uh, um, slightly. I think I was, I went to BC, it was kind of like on their pre-med track. Mm-hmm. And I was, I always wanted to do sort of medicine, helping people kind of along those lines. I was really into science and understanding the body. Um, when I started thinking more about the faith, I th- it was around the same time that I started thinking more into going in the direction of psychology. Mm-hmm. And so right my freshman year, I, I was taking a bunch of intro psych classes in that direction. And then, um, and then I started reading John Paul II and Love and Responsibility. Yeah, specifically. And it just, you know, I read it as a psychology manual. Yeah, Uh, it was basically in my mind, like this is this is our understanding of the human person. And this is the only way to understand how to help people, you know, get happy, you know, help people figure out where their dysfunction is and and how can we fix people? Yeah, I've 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 heard I've heard that uh, Janet, I've heard that uh, Janet Smith refers to this book as one of the most important and influential books ever written in western civilization so love and responsibility yeah yeah wow yeah that's 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 high praise <laughs> that's quite an endorsement yeah yeah but it's it is a fantastic book i mean it it's um i mean i don't know how would you describe it to someone who who maybe hasn't ever read 
um, John Paul II or or his work in this. I mean, it's very um, like you said. I, I'm I'm so um, uneducated when it comes to these terms and stuff, but it, it is very much about the human person and not necessarily psychology, but very much about uh, like what what is the human person. Yeah, and it well it breaks down the philosophy. It's kind of like a philosophical foundation that came before the theology of the body. Yeah, and um, it gives it basically is the answer to why people are miserable. Mm-hmm. And it, it just it, it breaks down what we're made for and how to attain that end. So we're made for love, and it teaches us how to actually love to put love into action. And, uh, and, and so, you know, his whole thing with personalism is that our actions define us and form us into who we are to become. So we're constantly in this process of becoming and every action forms us in that direction. So an action that we, that we commit or produce goes outwards and affects others. And it also sort of returns back to us and affects us. Mm. So if we, if we do uh, an action of virtue, then not only are we, you know, serve the poor, telling the truth, uh, making sacrifices, uh, loving people. It, it's not only affecting the world around us, but it's actually affecting us and it's forming us into a better version of ourselves. So this is what we're made for. And then, you know, the responsibility part, love and responsibility is sort of understanding the rules that define who we are, who we are and how we're made. And then based on that definition, this is this is how to act properly. This mm. is how to operate according to the structure. So it's like, you know, if you're if you're if you're working on a car, you have to know how the car is made. You have to know where to put the oil. You have to know where to, you know, how much oil you need to put in there. If you want the car to act properly to operate the way it was created, you have to know how it was actually put together. So that's really what I see, you know, love and responsibility is the blueprint of the human person tells us how we're made and what we're made for. And personalism is pretty important um, around the time of Vatican II and kind of since then, right? Like, um, whereas I think a lot of traditionally classical theology kind of just started with with God, personalism, I think is kind of in the vein of more like St. Augustine, it, it starts with starting with the person, which I, th- I feel like makes a lot of sense in a modern audience. When we're talking about speaking with non-Catholics, we can't just assume everyone uh, takes for granted that God exists and we can just start um, or, or have a more like, um, like the Greek philosophers have these, have these dialogues that start with, uh, with just like high truths. We kind of have to just start with the common, um, the common experience we all have, the human person. Um, yeah. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's I, I didn't think we I didn't realize we'd be talking so much philosophy. I don't know what, what who your audience is, but <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I mean, my mom, my mom is basically <laughs> part of my audience. I, I love talking about this stuff. I could talk all day. So, you know, personalism is, you know, it's really the integration. It's a beautiful integration. It's it because it, the thing is, that, you know, John Paul II was very familiar with phenomenology. Yeah which is a whole nother philosophical system, which is, it's limited because it really only focuses on the person. Mm-hmm. And it only focuses on the subjective experience and sort of tries to derive these objective truths, but they're based on 
the lens of the subjective. But but what John Paul too did because he had Thomistic formation, but and so he had a metaphysics that was that was well laid out objectively. But he he had such love for the human person for people. Yeah, that he wanted to 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 sort of leave the metaphysics aside for a moment to just enter into relationship with people and sit with and talk with people where they were at. And so he had this he had this great phenomenology in his formation that helped him to know how to reach people, talk to people and to put to formulate ideas in ways that made sense to people. And so personalism is really this beautiful fruit of the marriage, I think, in the way I think about it, uh, the marriage between the sort of objective, metaphysical, Thomistic way of looking at things, and then the more subjective, personal, human, uh, uh, Aristotelian, or sorry, uh, Augustinian, or um, you know, phenomenological way of thinking about things. And those two come together beautifully in John Paul II's thought, and then personalism is kind of the fruit of it. And so where, where this became radically important is in is in the 20th century because of the sexual revolution. Mm, yeah. You know, so basically have a whole culture, you know, you have the church in the beginning of the 20th century that's really restrictive and not not capital C church, but just the the sort of traditional way that things were talked about and and taught. You know, sex was really downplayed and there's some you know, some some Jansenism, some some of that Manichaeanism that was like the body is bad, the spirit is good, so we have to put the body down, put sex down, and then you have this eruption of the culture saying, "Sorry, church, you have it wrong. Sex is great, and so we're doing our own thing now. We don't trust you." Yeah. And then, so so personalism was John Paul II's way of coming back, and that's here we are, you know, 50 years from Humanae Vitae. This is you know the church teaching this stuff. But then, you know, Pope Paul VI said, you know, well, we have to understand this better. This is what's true. Contraception is wrong. The pill is a is a is an evil. But well, we we need people to explain that more for the for the sort of common understanding for the cultural understanding. And so John Paul II is kind of that answer, and he he came through, and he provided an understanding and explanation of why these objective truths make sense subjectively. And that's, again, where love and responsibility, he, he said, this is what the heart is longing for. When you desire something, this is what you're actually desiring. If You think you just desire sex, but that's why, this is why when you just have sex, you, you're ending up dissatisfied afterwards. Mm. Because what you're really longing for is true intimacy, true connection, true vulnerability, which requires the kind of relationship that, that lasts. You know, you can you can give all of yourself today, but are you giving all of yourself if you're holding back the part of you tomorrow? Mm. It's a it's a constant choice you're making now that's going to actually affect your life for the rest of your life till death do you part. That's what you're longing for. Mm. Yeah, so I, all, these ways of explaining things really really touch people and a more experiential level, and I think that's why it's so radically important. Totally, and and um, you know, we see. We see uh, people trying to answer, you know, like modern man at the time who wants to to um, kind of throw out, you know, maybe the classical thinking. You know, I I uh, I majored in cate catechetics, and 
you know, when we were tracing the history of catechetics right around this time, we noticed that people go way too far into the subjective and experiential. And it's just like, well, what does love mean to you? Or what does, um, what does Jesus mean to you? You know, like, uh, you know, Jesus is just all right, kind of, um, (laughs) with the Jesus movement kind of situation. And, uh, and John Paul II does such, give such a good example of a healthy balance between, you know, the objective truth of revelation, but also starting in the experience with the human person. So, so this, this book was really influential on you after you transfer, you transfer to Franciscan, or, or I forget now why we brought up this book. I'm trying to bring us back yeah, to, no, yeah, to was, your story. Well, you asked about changing majors, and yeah. I was um, I actually read that at Boston College, and then it, it got me, you know, I started sort of shifting towards psychology away from medicine. Yeah, and um, then when I transferred to Steubenville, I was already, you know, I was I was definitely majoring in psychology at that point. Yeah, and um, and already thinking about it in terms of integrating it with the faith. Okay, and then so. Talk to us about um, transitioning out of college into the real world. What was kind of the the story there? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a really messy story. It's a <laughs> it's a, not in a bad way, but it's uh, I you know I was also at the same time the two, the two sort of monumental things that I did I read at, at Boston College. One was Love and Responsibility. The other was the um, the Chesterton biography of Saint Francis. Mm. And I was. Uh, I was really inspired by St. Francis. And so I started discerning becoming a Franciscan. And so along that track, uh, through college, I was bouncing back and forth between I'm going to be a friar and then, you know, I'd meet some pretty girl and I'd want to date her. And so <laughs> I left behind <laughs> thoughts of being a friar. Yeah. And so I went back and forth a lot. And then, um, you know, and, and I would, you know, when I was single and I was just kind of returning back to you know, sort of discerning that way of life. And I'd have a lot of peace, but then, you know, my senior year, I was, um, I, I was really torn. And when I graduated, I was dating somebody. So I thought, well, I better kind of think ahead and and go to grad school. And there was this new school that had formed called the Institute for Psychological Sciences, which was formed to integrate Catholic philosophy and theology with psychology. So it was a perfect fit. What was, and, it, what um, was it called? The Institute of... Institute for Psychological Sciences, IPS. Okay. And they were there in Arlington, Virginia. And um, I decided to go there. And then when I... And I thought it would kind of answer my question once I got out of college and just started moving into professional track. And after a year there, I was still really confused and still thinking about the friars. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking a leave of absence and uh, joined the CFR Friars in New York, and I was there for almost four years, um, still discerning, just trying to figure things out. I went through novitiate, I went through temporary vows, and I was really living the life. And at, at first, it was just really joyful and thought that this was right for me and this is what I was made for. Um, and then just over time a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, a lot of really good spiritual direction. It's a really healthy community, so they really help men figure out who they are. Uh, I ended up realizing that I was kind of working through my own stuff, and um, I was really called to marriage. So I ended up leaving and uh, going back to school at IPS, and so I picked up where I left off and ended up, you know, that was there for another four years. Uh, Met my wife my last year when I was there, Graduated, moved back up to New York, 
and uh, started a family. Wow. So being being with the Franciscans for four years, I mean, that that has to have, um, I mean, I can't imagine that not kind of impacting you in a great way or, or maybe even impacting um, maybe your practice even. Oh, everything. It's everything. I think it's it's the most beautiful, amazing formation and preparation that that God could have allowed me. I feel like the 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 most blessed, luckiest man on earth. I, I got to live that life for four years, even though it's not my vocation. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Well, and um, you know, the spiritual formation, the education, uh, everything is just just very very deep. I mean, it sounds like you were you were really coming alive in your faith and diving really deep into the faith that you weren't, you know, you weren't uh, you weren't spiritually lazy. But but so what what um, I guess what was one of the biggest things, you know, the first couple of years with the Franciscans? Um, what was one of the biggest things that I guess the only way I'm thinking to say this is like, what was one of the biggest things that had to change or what was what was one of the biggest um yeah, one of the biggest changes that that lifestyle, maybe you could even describe their lifestyle a little bit for people who don't don't understand, but well, the lifestyle is radical. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they the CFRs especially, they were formed as a response to sort of some of the mediocrity that was happening in religious life through the 70s and 80s. And so the CFRs, they were they were formed by Father Benedict Rochelle and a number of other friars that were um, they were a different group called the Capuchin Franciscans, and they split off and started this renewal order to return to the simplicity and the the fidelity and the faith of of Saint Francis. And so they they kind of wanted to uh, just go back to d- just radical orthodoxy, basically, but also with poverty. And so they, um, you know, they really give up everything. And so I, I had, you know, I didn't have much. I was, I was still, I was just starting graduate school, but you know, I had, I had whatever I had and I just gave everything away. I had just gotten a new car and, um, that I had been saving up for like a year for, and then pretty much three, I forget if it was three or six months after I got the car is when I made that decision to take the leave of absence and nice. <laughs> I sold the car. <laughs> nice. I, I remember I sent the check to, to, uh, this, this mission group in Haiti that I knew of. I was like, I'm just sending this money to Haiti. Like really just went all in. And there was this, there was a great joy and exuberance in just kind of picking up the cross, hearing the call of Christ. Um, it, and it just wasn't hard. You know, there was nothing hard about it. Mm. It was really just such a grace to, to just be really excited about jumping headfirst all in. So, but then you really live in this state of total, total trust and abandonment and relying on God to provide everything. Mm. So my, one of my jobs there was as a, a food um, uh, beggar, basically. So we were in New York, and they have uh, this, this part of the Bronx called Hunts Point, and it's where all of the trucks come in from across the country from all the different farms and they unload there. And then it's like this massive restaurant and distribution depot where there's just, just imagine, you know, like five football fields of just row after row of all these loading docks for trucks. And then there's these platforms where there are all these vendors and there are, these are like the saltiest, you know, salt of the earth, <laughs> Rough guys, you can imagine, like 
Italian mobsters, like all <laughs> sorts of people there. And then there would be these friars, you know, we'd be walking up and down these platforms, going from vendor to vendor, and just introducing ourselves, explaining who we are, what we do, and then asking, hey, do you have any crates that broke coming off the truck? Any extra heads of lettuce, you know, any tomatoes, anything that came off the truck? Wow. And that's how we would, that's how we lived. That's how we survived. We, we begged our food. Um, and then we also use that food for ministry. So we would serve the homeless in our neighborhoods. Um, and, and it was awesome because it, I mean, just seeing the opportunities, I mean, the conversations that would ensue after making an introduction like that, just mind blowing. I mean, we had literally mobsters that, you know, we, we would be talking with them about going to confession. They would be asking us to, I wasn't a priest, but I would be with a priest. They were asking us to come back to their house to say mass you know, to pray for them, like all this stuff. And these, and there's one guy, I, I didn't know like who these people were at first and the brothers would kind of tell me. And then there was one time we were there, it was kind of late in the evening and the guy stops me as we're walking away and he goes, Hey brother, he goes, it's not safe to be around here. You want me to walk out with you? And I was like, I think we're okay. And he goes, no, really? And he pulls out a gun from his, from his coat. Oh my God. <laughs> He's like, He's like, I'm going to walk with you. It's all right. Everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Where am I right now? Now yeah. I have armed guards. I mean, that's great. But like, no, these guys are serious. Wow. So just kind of you're in the midst, in the thick of it. And and seeing God provide, not only provide us food, but hopefully provide these guys some grace. And who knows what kind of seeds could be planted and, and helping them, you know, find find God. Man, that's amazing. That's amazing. I'm sure, and I'm sure a lot of, uh, I keep coming, I, I feel like love and responsibility or just this personalism is becoming kind of the theme, but I feel like, uh, um, especially if you're going to, if you're going to end up being a psychologist or working, working with people, just being, being exposed to so many different types of people and so many different situations and circumstances, I'm, I'm sure has been really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely. I mean, I, I think as a psychologist, we learn pretty quickly that there's all different stories, all different kinds of ways to live this humanity. Yeah. And and it's really important to have a thread of consistency and commonality to kind of really know what's essentially human. And that's something that our faith provides us that is the 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 greatest benefit as a psychologist. To, to have this foundation to rely on, to know that. I mean, it goes back to, like, God even Spes 22, you know, in, in, in seeing Jesus as the model for humanity. You know, he is the essential human, and he, he reveals our humanity to us. Mm. So if we can, if we see the model in him, and we know what we're made for, then that's going to cross all cultures it crosses all experiences, all diversity, and and there is this in this consistent thread of humanity. So I can meet people wherever they're at, whoever they are, wherever they come from, and I know what their humanity is supposed to look like. And then we can kind of put the pieces together based on whatever is broken, whatever is diverse, whatever is individual, but there's some kind of coherence to it. Yeah. So, so... maybe take us now, you know, through your practice and up until maybe, um, you know, you deciding to write this book, The Mindful Catholic. Yeah. So I, I started 
I mean, it's another fa- sort of fundamental thing I learned as a friar. Mm-hmm. Father Benedict Rochelle was a, he's a psychologist, a uh, friar who, when he founded the order, you know, kind of just naturally brought his own psychological understanding of the person into the order. And the way he prayed was also just very integrated, very coherent. So uh, he, he would talk about abandonment to divine providence mm, that's, and that's, trustful surrender. Because that, are you referring to the book or just? Yeah, the book. Yeah. And yeah, was, so was this, he a professional psychologist before before being religious? No, he was he was a religious all for all, all of his adult life. Okay, but he okay. and he became a psychologist as a religious. Oh, okay. To, he became a professional psychologist to serve the church. Wow. So he was uh, he was put through. Um, I forget if he went to NYU, um, or he went to Columbia. I forget where he, he went to one of the universities in um, in New York, and he was there as a friar. Wow. And so, um, yeah, he had very interesting stories going up through, I forget if it was the sixties, whenever he was getting his, his doctorate <laughs> yeah, and, uh, just in, just interacting with people. And he said there was a great reverence for, for religious at the time. So he had no problems, whatever, whatsoever, mm-hmm. but he, the way, you know, he, he just had this integrated way of, if we're growing in faith, if we're growing in trust, if we're going in closeness to God, then that has an effect on our emotional lives and it should. So he had this. He has a book called Spiritual Passages, and he maps out the three ways of the spiritual life, going from the purgative to the illuminative to the unitive. Okay, which is kind of like this traditional understanding of sort of spiritual growth. Yeah, and he 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 kind of proposed that as you increase in the spiritual life in closeness to God, our fundamental anxiety of life decreases. Mm-hmm. And so he drew this diagram or this chart where he would have a line going up as you as you progress forward and your and your spiritual life is increasing on this chart. This fundamental anxiety is decreasing and there's a point where they intersect. And so he kind of mapped out this whole understanding of how growing in and I think it was either I think it's at the beginning of the purgative way. Or the end of the per uh, the end of the purgative way, the beginning of the illuminative way, is where they intersect. Mm-hmm. And so the the illuminative way is this decrease of anxiety, and he's talking about like a fundamental kind of baseline human anxiety, not like an anxiety disorder, but yeah. just the sense of not knowing who you are, not knowing that there's really a God out there who's taking care of us, and needing to sort of push through that to having this sort of beautiful sort of whole new world perspective where now we know there's a God who loves us and takes care of us and it makes life beautiful. Mm. And that's, so, so there's this interaction between spiritual life and emotional life. And so that was, that was the beginning of my foundation in understanding how to intersect, how to combine the spiritual life with psychology. And when I started practicing, so I practiced my spiritual life that way. That was a bit into divine providence there's also like a very Carmelite flavor to it, so there's a lot of different Carmelite sort of correlates that come into play. But that that was my own personal spiritual life, and I I kind of just kept it to myself. Then I got into psychology and the practice and the clinical work, and there's this practice, uh, there's this program called mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it's incredibly effective at reducing anxiety, reducing depression, 
reducing all sorts of other psychological disorders and mm-hmm. symptoms. And so, you know, you just use it as a as a technique because it works. Yeah. Uh, along with a number of others. Um, but then the more that I started practicing, understanding it and putting it into practice and practicing it with my patients, I I internally felt how much these two things relate to each other. And I naturally realized that these mindfulness exercises feel exactly like what my brain feels like and my mind feels like when I'm in prayer. Yeah. So then it started, then I realized like we, I could actually develop a language and a way to teach mindfulness by grounding it in Catholic truth and in spiritual truths that, um, that we should live as Catholics. And it was really helpful because everything that's available, most of what's available is the mindfulness practice that comes from Buddhism. Yeah. 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 You know, so it's, it can be, you know, mindfulness itself is just their brain exercises. You know, mm-hmm. their, their ways of exercising the brain, even though they come from Buddhism, it's still, it's, it's as if Buddhists just, you know, invented Sudoku. You know, you can, <laughs> you can do the Sudoku exercises. You're still exercising your brain, even though a Buddhist created it. And a Buddhist might be doing their Sudoku exercises as a religious practice on their own, in their own terms you know, in their worldview. And so, so that's sort of like it as a brain exercise for them, it's embedded into their spirituality. We could still use the brain exercise, even though we're not embedding it in the spirituality. But what I realized is that I can actually create a way to embed it in our spirituality. Mm. Hold, hold so on. That becomes much more effective. Hold on one second. My f- son is uh, watching TV and let me go turn it down a little bit. I'm really sorry. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no worries. Before you, you write me letters and get upset, right? Hold on. Hello? Yep. I'm so sorry. No worries. <laughs> he was, I mean, uh, our second oldest is um, pretty good at working the TV, but I think he was um, kind of browsing Netflix a little too much, so I had to, <laughs> had to intervene. <laughs> and he was turning up the volume, so. Um, oh, I wanted to say, I mean, I mean, um, I knew I knew we were going to get to this and I, I wanted to uh, but I wanted to just say like it's it's almost as if, uh, you know, I, I have to be careful because I get I get really kind of frustrated and irritated. But it, it would be like if um, if we found out like an ancient pagan religion was doing push ups ceremonially to worship like some foreign pagan god. And then therefore we said like, all right push-ups are off. We can't do push-ups anymore. Like that, that is now, that is now the worship of a, of a, of a false God. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, some, some type of brain activities are really healthy and, and helpful for the brain. And if, um, it, there, there just happens to be a, a religion built around some of this, um, these brain exercises that kind of, kind of, um, I don't know, it kind of meshes that line between whether or not it's, it's spiritual or just, healthy brain activity. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the cool thing as I've, as I've sort of prayed and reflected on, you know, some people I, I you're refer, I think your, your frustration, maybe you're, you're referring to some people having some difficulty with trying to, uh, baptize and, and make Catholic a practice that comes from Buddhism. But I, you know, I was reflecting on how beautiful like, we can take something that's a negative, like for instance, the fact that Buddhists don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. And we can say, yeah, that's obviously they're wrong 
and they're misguided. Um, they're doing the best they can with what they have. They didn't have the revelation of Christ, and you know they they're left with this. The, kind of going back to this personalism, they're they're left with the human experience, and they're doing they're making do with what they have when they experience their own humanity, and they're seeing that treating people with kindness is better than not, mm. and speaking the truth is better than not. Mm. And focusing the mind on the present moment is better than not. And, you know, they, they don't have the, the blessing and the grace of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what they're left with then is to just study really hard what the brain does and yes. what the mind does. Yeah. You know, they have, they're left with humanity. And because they don't have God to look at, God to study, God to theologize about, all they have is the mind, and they've become profound experts at the mind. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, in our spirituality, we have such beautiful, amazing, you know, just this just cosmically mind-blowing theology. You know, we have all these writings of the saints and all this stuff that takes us into God. And it's almost like, and this is not to fault, because I'm not saying this as a negative at all, but because we have the better thing to sort of go into, we sort of very quickly pass through the, the human side of it. Mm. And, and and it becomes a temptation almost to say, well, let's just disregard looking at what's happening on our end yeah. because we can go, we can just go past it to what's more important, which is what's happening on God's end. Mm. And so we sort of blow past this is what the brain is doing. This is what the mind is doing. This is what's happening. And we, yeah, we'll talk about it insofar as it helps us understand how to pray or insofar as it, it brings us closer to union with God. But we don't, we don't have the same limitations that the Buddhists have where the mind is all they have. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where the, it stops for them. So then they spend all of their time pooling all of their resources up around that reality. So then they become really, really good at understanding the mind. Yeah. And then we can actually learn from that because we didn't spend as much time thinking about all these different aspects of the mind. Exactly. Again, to come back to the whole personalism thing, I mean, I mean, um, the, you know, Buddhists are very, very versed in human experience. Um, and we have the benefit of revelation or the benefit of, you know, divine truth to guide that kind of subjective experience. And so when, when the Buddhists, you know, kind of get a little far afield talking about, you know, the, the dissolving of the ego or something like that, we know based on our faith, we know based on just, just using reason and, and other things, not, not just, not just like a blind faith in revelation, but we know, um, that those things are okay. Now we've gone kind of far afield. Those aren't, those aren't sure. good. I remember, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And I remember, I remember when I was younger one time, uh, even reading, um, Man, I forget. I was I was super young. I was probably in middle school, and I had grabbed. My dad had this really big, like '70s style uh, bodybuilding. Um, it was like, what do you even call those? It was like a a workbook. It was by some like famous bodybuilder, and it was basically like his routines and and like how to how to start working out and all of this. And part of his story was kind of in it. And he talked about how one, one thing that he did a lot was he almost every day he would lay down and just focus, try to just do these like sessions of just focusing on 
on maybe like a number and just visualizing the number and trying to focus all of his attention and energy in just that one number and uh and you know i'm reading it as a kid and i'm like that sounds really lame like what is what is going on this sounds stupid um and you know i like try it for a few seconds and i'm like man why is it so hard to just focus <laughs> my mind on this one thing you know and here's this big strong buff guy who is talking about how how he experienced he just kind of he he didn't read anything he wasn't he didn't read buddhism he didn't come from it he just from a purely human experience perspective he was like the more focus i have um when i'm doing my workout the better the workout is and i found that when i practice that focus um i have better focus in my workout and it also was bleeding into other areas of his life and was just purely from a human experience from a purely like just scientific you know brain matter uh perspective that helped him a ton so you know as a even in middle school as a kid i'm like hey wow this is really cool it's just like brain exercises yeah, stuff can be really helpful. And it's in a sense that you could see that another person's limitation can actually be our strength. It could be something we learn from and gain something from. And I think that's a bigger picture mentality to have when it comes to, you know, it reminds me actually of, of um, there's there's an awesome talk by Peter Kreeft on ecumenical dialogue. Oh, I ecumenism. love, I love that. Yeah, ec ecumenism without compromise. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, and and it's the same thing. Like, okay, so the Protestants don't have the sacraments. They don't have the 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 sort of continuation of the you know apostolic succession. And there's a lot of things that they don't have, but they do have relationship with Jesus Christ, mm. which is something that Catholics really are bad at. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Like you know, we're there's there's a lot to gain here because they don't have all these things that can be distracting in the sense of becoming a priority, you know, how, you know, liturgical norms and, you know, are you praying with your hands up or down or, you know, are we using Latin or the vernacular or all these things, which are important conversations, but can be distractions yeah, from yeah. a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the Protestants don't have any of that stuff. Yeah. And so then they're left with relationship with Jesus Christ. So then they get so, they get really good at that, and then we can use that. Exactly. It's but like, what? Why would we block that conversation out? Yeah, it's. Uh, it reminds. I forget what church document it's from, but there's a church document uh, that talks about the relationship between the Catholic Church and other religions and other. And it says in there that if if I mean it basically lays out like if we believe we have the fullness of truth, if we believe that our God is a God of truth, then that means anywhere that someone attests to and believes in even a part of the truth, that truth is our truth. You know, like that right. That someone in another, if, if, if someone starts a religion tomorrow and is just trying to figure things out themselves without the Bible, but, but, comes, but just comes up with the idea like, I think it's good to love our enemies. Like that is our truth, but they've just right. found it in their own way. And we can say like, we, yeah, we attest to that truth it's a it's a sliver of truth but wherever truth is to be found um it's true and that's and that's god yeah and the piece that i think some people are missing i think you're referring to nostra aetate which is mm -hmm. it, it talks about the rays of truth that shine from the same source of light and they you know the some people say like well they they yeah those are rays but it's not the fullness of the truth so i even bother with it and yeah. i think it's missing the fact that we are humans living out these truths. It's not just this objective, detached, unhuman 
dehumanized reality. It's kind of, again, I, I, there, there is definitely a sort of a, a feeling of this conversation coming back to this idea of personalism over and over again. But, yeah. you know, you, the, 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 the objective truths detached from the human experience are, are really meaningless yeah. in, actu- in our actual lives. So we can say, yes, we understand forgiveness is the truth. That's the whole truth. But for some people, there may be some culture, some people, some mindset, some religion that all they think about and do and talk about is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So they actually might be doing it better, mm. even though they only have a sliver of the whole truth. And even though we already have forgiveness in our understanding of the whole truth, they might be living it out in a better human way because that's all they have to think and talk about. Yeah, yeah. So if we can actually dialogue and say, hey, listen, I'm going to read your book on forgiveness because you have a better way to humanize it, which I can learn from and grow from and actually then let it be a part of my fullness of truth. And and that's and that's one of the best ways, you know, when we talk about evangelizing a culture or or bringing the gospel to a culture, that's one of the best ways is to not come in and say, hey, throw away everything that you've believed up until this point, but, you know, like St. Paul does in the uh, this Greek civilization, or I, th- I think I'm getting it right, where he he kind of points to a tomb, or this, I guess, some type of effigy or some statue or something that says, to an unknown god, and it was, right. you know, the people were worshiping this this thing that just says an unknown God. And so St. Paul comes in and he kind of uses that as an in and, and, and says like, okay, this unknown God that you're worshiping actually is, is our God is the true God. And in, in, um, in the church's history, it's done really well to come in and show, I forget, man, I'm forgetting where this comes from, but I remember hearing someone say that basically to come into a culture and to kind of, um, dig through the culture and find the seeds of truth that have been planted and kind of point to, wow, you know, you have this wonderful understanding of forgiveness. Here's how Jesus Christ brings it to a whole nother level. Like you're on the right path. Here's what, here's what you're missing or here's where we can go farther with this idea and how it fulfills what you're really searching for. Um, Anyway, man, I could talk about that kind of stuff forever. I'll, yeah, one, it's amazing. One, I'll just tell one last story. So have you read um, Set All Afire by Louis DeWall? This is the second time in a row I've referenced it in a podcast. I uh, know. So it's just, um, it's historical fiction, but uh, I think written by a Jesuit priest, but I think a Jesuit priest, but it tells the story of St. Francis Xavier, and there's this beautiful part where St. Francis Xavier has made it to Japan, and he's trying to evangelize the samurai there, and, you know, St. Francis Xavier and some of his companions are there, and um, there's one moment where this group of, this band of samurai and the group of Franciscans are really, um, they're kind of like at odds, the samurai are threatening them and doing all this stuff, and the Franciscans are very like, um, or not, no, sorry, not Franciscans, wait, Francis Xavier, Jesuits, right? Jesuits. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. uh, So, at one point, the samurai are threatening them. Jesuits are pacifists, right? So they're not doing anything. And at one point, a samurai uh, just like like winds up and spits in one of the Jesuits' faces. And, um, you know, the Jesuits and samurai eventually kind of d- go their own separate ways. Well, one of the samurai follows after the Jesuits and says, um, I want to be a Jesuit. I want to follow your, your god. And they're wow. asking him why. And he says, I've never seen the type of composure and huh. like and like self um self mastery, not even in the highest samurai, 
that 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 Jesuit displayed when when spit in his face and threatened, right? And wow. he and it was like this higher level of samurai um, practice that he saw in the Jesuits, which I feel like is just such an amazing like like you know if Jesus Christ fully reveals man to himself, that means whatever is good and true that people are searching in other areas of their life or or other disciplines, we can like they should be able to see the highest version of that in, in the saints, you know? Um, so just a wonderful, I don't know, I just had to throw that out there because that's just such a wonderful, I think, analogy for what we're talking about. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's really so beautiful. And, and it shows us like the full, the full power of the incarnation. Like God really did become man and humanity is made out of God's image. And so like there's so, it's just the basic, simple human stuff. Yeah. That, that can actually bring us to these divine heights of of contemplation and revelation. So so describe define or I guess describe kind of set up the book for us the mindful Catholic. You talked a little bit about um, about what was it called meditation based stress reduction. I think, uh, mindfulness or? mindfulness oh, my. based stress reduction. It's called uh, it says program uh, MBSR for short. It was started in 1979 by a Buddhist medical researcher named John Kabat-Zinn, who was a, a doctor at uh, uh, UMass Medical Center. Mm-hmm. And he ran a clinic for chronic pain patients and started to teach them mindfulness exercises that he knew as a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of he kind of standardized an eight-week protocol of different lessons, different exercises, and teaching people how to get control of where their minds go and how they're ruminating. And and over time he standardized this standardized this eight-week protocol, which then was researched, and they just found consistent results for for you know the last four decades over and over again, showing how this is actually changing the brain. It actually makes us healthier. Uh, we can see it now in brain scans, the areas of the brain that are changed by the mindfulness practice in just eight weeks, um, you know, and, and then it was just, it's, re- it's reduced all sorts of, de- of anxiety and mood disorder symptoms, and it has the effect, as good or better effect than medication in a lot of cases. That's crazy, uh, so yeah, when I, when I heard that, really, that is crazy. Even, even with the chronic pain, they were finding that it's, it's better, it's better at treating chronic pain in some cases than morphine. Wow. And it, and it always makes morphine a more effective treatment by by doing a uh, you know a um, a combination of the mindfulness plus drugs. So 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 it seems like it seems like uh it's it seems like mindfulness or whatever this pra- the pra- I want you maybe get into describing the practice a little bit, but it seems like this is healthy for the brain. Now I've heard some people say. Um, you know, they approach it from an evolution standpoint. And I've heard some people say, um, yeah, like this is very helpful because we live in such a distracted world. We're constantly thinking about the future instead of being right here in the present, just kind of living in our actions. But I've heard other people say, well, um, you know, we did not evolve as apes to just sit in a room and think about and think about thinking. Um, so what is it that's going on scientifically with the brain that seem that that seems to make this this activity so healthy almost like oxygen for for the way we think 
Yeah. So, so basically, you know, to, to, to go back to the evolutionary sort of perspective, you know, we have to separate healthy from survival. Mm. And, you know, there, there's a lot of different evolutionary theory out there and, and all different aspects you can take. But, you know, when it comes to, to survival and, and evolutionary development, it has to do with, you know, protecting the gene pool. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with whether you're happy. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, there's all sorts of, you can get into all different studies to say, well, d- you know, happiness changes your lifespan and all this stuff. Yeah, sure. But are, do you live long enough to procreate? If you're unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely possible. You're still passing on those genes. Yeah. Even if you're living in a way that's not happy or, you know, that's not healthy. So, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's a bit of a false dichotomy to kind of say, well, if it's one, it's not the other. Mm-hmm. The fact is our survival instinct is to have a negativity bias. Mm-hmm. Our survival instinct is to assume the worst. If we assume the worst, then we're going to take every threat, whether it's neutral or non-threatening, and we're going to react accordingly. And I, that means that when there is a threat, we're going to we're going to be in a position to protect ourselves and survive. Yeah, I remember I I um I've talked a lot about I guess both privately but also on this podcast about um the benefits of marriage counseling and just counseling in general has been huge for myself personally but also me and my wife and i think you know i i feel like i always have to preface this with don't wait until your marriage is not doing well um to go to counseling like just just do i mean it's almost like getting a tune-up but i remember um in one particular session talking about how uh um i was we were talking through some of these um you know, thinking the worst or, or being uh, nervous or constantly being self-critical. And I was, I was wrestling with exactly what you're talking about. Cause I was telling, um, our counselor, I think Dave McLeod, I was telling him, um, you know, it's hard to turn this off because it's helped me so much in the past. Like it's, it, you know, if, if you're out, if you're out in the woods and you hear a certain sound and what follows after that is a snake, um, and the next time you hear that sound, you're nervous about that sound and it protects you from a snake. Like that seems like a good thing to be worried and consciously anxious about that sound. And we, and right. kind of like what you're describing, you know, we've been, um, we've evolved or our brains are wired to help us look for things that could be a danger or a threat. And so we're trying to, we're constantly going through our daily life, kind of looking for snakes or bears uh, and kind of trying to predict, you know, what, what door are we going to open? That's going to have a bear or snake behind it. But when we're just kind of sitting at our desk, reading email and our brain is constantly at that, like, um, I don't know what that state is where you're, where you're just, I don't know if the word's anxiety, but you're just, um, you're just on on edge. You're you're in the kind of fight or flight mode. Exactly. That's what it is. It's is you're on guard. Your sympathetic nervous system is is uh, triggered, and being on guard, you're ready for a threat to to appear. And it's because we're thinking beings, because we're 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 embodied spirits, not just animals, that we can actually transcend the moment and step outside of our environment to consider things like, am I actually safe in the world? Mm, yeah. And if we can consider I'm actually safe in the world, then we can put into practice ways of changing that negativity bias, changing that sympathetic nervous response as a default, you know, a position. And, and we can do these other things that remind us that we're actually safe. 
So what mindfulness practice is, is, is paying attention to the five senses, mm-hmm. paying attention to the present moment through the five senses to start anyway, uh, in a non-judgmental way. And, and so, and to, to kind of, you know, it's too, too much to really kind of explain all of it. It's an eight week course. So, so it's, it's tough <laughs> to try to summarize it, but yeah. simple definition is paying attention to the present moment, non-judgmentally. And, and basically the way I describe it is we have five senses that are telling our brain something about this moment. So right now you have the sense of touch and the sense of touch is always operating, but we're not always paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. So you can choose to pay attention to the feeling of the seat that you're sitting on or the floor that you're standing on. And, and you can let your brain sort of tune in to that sensory experience coming through your sensory neurons in your body. Now those sensory neurons are always firing, but you're not always paying attention to what that experience is like in your brain. And so we have those five senses. We can look, we can taste, we can smell, we can touch all that. And, and, and is is telling us what's happening right now, here and now. The feeling we're feeling is is the floor we're standing on now. It's the smell of the air around us now in this present moment. When we have when we focus on our thoughts, our thoughts are almost like a sixth sense. So it, it's it, or or our imagination creating thoughts in our brain. It's a different kind of data point to pay attention to. So you can pay attention to the thoughts going through your head, or you can pay attention to the ground you're standing on. Mm. The difference is the ground is communicating to you the reality of this present moment. Your thoughts in your brain may or may not. Yeah. So you could think the thought, the sky is blue. You could also think the thought, the sky is green. Mm. You're not a, you're not restricted or limited to the present moment what's real in this time and space right now in your thoughts. Yeah. And so th- that becomes that that's just a uh that's just a point of fact. It could be it could be for the good or for or for the ill. So when it comes to prayer, that's a beautiful capacity that God gives us so we can step outside of the here and now. We can close our eyes, we can imagine being in some scripture verse. We can ima- you know meditate on the mysteries of the rosary. We can commune with God who is not available to our senses in the present moment. So we, we have this ability to step outside of the present moment in that sense. But then again, we can also abuse that faculty by creating situations in our brain where there's a danger. Yeah. And that's what's happening when, when we're stuck in our thoughts. And so if we think about the brain as having a very simple on-off switch with the sympathetic nervous response, mm-hmm. if the data being presented to the brain is safe, the sympathetic nervous response is off. If the data being presented to the brain is is a threat in any way, then the sympathetic nervous response is triggered. And it could be the threat could be the the snake in the bush, or it could be uh, what's going to happen if I'm late to this meeting, yeah. or what's going to happen if you know something's going on with my kids, or what's going to happen. You know, there's a million things that we do in our brain which are just simply, you know, bad instead of good. Yeah, and it's 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 important to note too that um, you know, when you're sim- to kind of re-describe when your sympathetic nervous system is turned on, you're in that fight or flight and, you know, 
like I think like cortisol and adrenaline is kind of releasing your body, stress hormones, all of exactly. these things that have, um, you know, we've, we have scientific evidence of them of really kind of damaging your body when you're constantly in that kind of, um, a hundred miles an hour mode because your, your body's trying to, trying to heighten the senses and get ready and get, get defensive. And, and it's, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. To, and it, and it impacts the way you think about everything, the way you, th you think about, um, your interactions with people or the way that you can react. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted was, to, Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's part of, part of the mindfulness based stress reduction. Part of the course is to learn how those, how, to, how that cortisol level affects your brain. You know, when, when we're running through the woods from a threat, you know, when the snake rattles and we, when, and we take off, the effect in the mind is that our, our focus is incredibly narrowed mm. and that becomes, you know, because of the one thing that we're thinking is get to safety. Yeah. We're in danger, get to safety. And so you're not open in your mindset. You're not looking around, noticing the cloud formations. You know, you're not running through the jungle thinking to yourself, I wonder if it's going to rain today. <laughs> yeah. you know, you, I wonder what I'll have for dinner tonight. Yeah. You know, you're like, you're just thinking one thing, get yeah. to safety. And yeah. then so the, that's the, that's the effect of cortisol. So anytime we're in that ruminative state or anxiety state, where even just a slight trigger of the sympathetic nervous response happens, it is, it is restricting our ability to think and to circle back on a point that you're making earlier. That's why no matter what the actual problem is that we have to solve, no matter what the actual threat is in our life, if we can approach it as a non-life-threatening threat, which is to approach it mindfully instead of in that in that fight-or-flight state, we're going to see more of the problem, and yeah. we're going to see more of the potential solutions to work out of the problem. Yeah. So it's not about sitting around and navel-gazing yes. and just sort of like counting our breaths. It's about being open to reality as it actually is, which includes... Things you have to figure out, schedules you have to make, yeah, all these different things. But it's knowing the difference between a, a, a brain state where your life is being threatened on a physiological level and a brain state where you know that you're actually safe. Yeah, and, and I think it's also important to kind of loop back around and talk about, you know, when, when, um, when you say, uh, you know, in this mindfulness practice, we're trying to be more more aware maybe of our thoughts. I think a lot of people think <laughs> this is going to get really weird, but a lot of people think that they control their thoughts. Like, and I think that was one of the, one of a huge, um, a huge kind of eye-opening moment for me was realizing that how, realizing how much a lot of my thoughts are not necessarily, um, now, obviously, like there's no one else thinking the thoughts, but, you know, if you're just kind of sitting in a chair daydreaming and certain thoughts are popping into your head or if you, you know, like we talked about, if you try to just focus on um, even anyone who's tried to pray, you just try to focus on Jesus and then like these random thoughts kind of pop into your head. And it's interesting how um, uh, we get into these kind of habits of thought. You know, um, or maybe these narratives that we tell ourselves. I think you talk a little bit about in the book, um, and it's it's no small it's no small point. I feel like to 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 you know spend some time thinking about, thinking about thinking, but thinking about how the thoughts that pop into our head. Um, I feel I feel nervous when I talk about this because I feel like there's you know someone's going to say what there's you know that that this is getting um, I don't know too far afield, but 
um, not all of our thoughts are, we don't necessarily control all of our split second reactionary thoughts, especially when we're in that. Does that make sense? Especially when we're in that situation, that um, cortisol induced kind of frenzy. Oh, absolutely. We have all sorts of ways that our unconscious mind produces thoughts and it's not under our conscious control. We have, I mean, this is sort of a, fu a fundamental point of the moral life and understanding how to engage with what goes through our head. And, you know, people say, you know, when, um, like talking about lust, for example, you know, it's, it's not about whether or not the thought crosses your mind. It's whether you entertain it. Yeah. Is the, is usually the language. And isn't it true? So, so there's a, Oh, sorry, go, go. Well, there's a difference between the initial appearance of a thought that pops into our brain or our mind and then what we do with it after that, which is actually why mindfulness is so incredibly helpful for the spiritual life, because it teaches us how to not get dragged into the thought process. It's an actually it's a really effective way to to actually learn how to be at peace with ourselves, to have compassion towards ourselves, regardless of the kinds of thoughts that pop into our head. The example that I always give uh, is is as a parent. When, I, when we had our firstborn, I was living in a uh, fourth-floor apartment, and was, he was just home from the hospital, and I had him all sort of swaddled up, and I was holding him, and I walk outside on the balcony, and the, the thought crosses my mind to throw him off the balcony. Oh, my gosh. Every parent has had—that is, that is such an untalked—that is, is a not-talked-about reality of parenthood exactly. is you have these weird— Thoughts, I guess, I, I wonder if it's because y y not often in your life are you, is your, is the power dynamic so out of balance than when you're holding like a one week old? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're charged with protecting the baby. So yeah. if, you know, in the, in the sense, like what actually happened was I, I ran inside. I was sick to my stomach. Yeah. I yeah. was, I, I was, I spent a couple minutes trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with me. And am I, uh, you know, do I need to check myself into a hospital because yeah. I'm a psychopath? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but then I realized, okay, I'm going to turn away from this thought. It doesn't matter. And, but then I, in, in further reflection later, I was thinking to myself, what an amazing, uh, you know, maybe it's evolutionary that, that we have this sort of residual artifact of, of the way the brain works, but it's like, being up high, four four floors above the ground, on a balcony outside, is actually potentially threatening to the baby. Mm, yeah. So so because because the survival instinct is so shared in a family, my survival instinct was actually acting on behalf of my baby, mm. and it got me in the house. Yeah. It got me inside. So there, it, it, regardless of. Whether or not I'm actually capable of throwing him off the balcony or none of that was really the consideration. It was simply this immediate thought that got me to go inside. Yeah. And, and that's so. So the, to your point, I, I certainly didn't control that thought. I <laughs> no, certainly no. I was horrified by that thought. Yeah. And and then I recognized like, OK, there was a there. You know, it's dangerous to be up high. I remember later, like six months earlier, there was a story of somebody falling off a balcony and dying and like somewhere that was in the in the memory banks and you know there's there's just all the stuff that gets into it but if we start to treat ourselves as if somehow I'm a bad person because I because and this is what I'm capable of doing and I and I go down that rabbit hole of rumination 
that's that's when we really hurt ourselves. Yeah. And instead, that it, that's entertaining the thought in 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 that sense, and instead we could just turn away from it. Yeah, and I and I think um I think a lot of I mean I know for myself I I know that um you know becoming more aware of the fact that thoughts cross through my mind um or the fact that I interpret things certain ways and 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 I guess just this idea that and I I don't know how much I believe this statement wholeheartedly, but just the phrase kind of helps me is like, I'm, I, I am not always my thoughts, you know, and, and as I, I guess with the, with mindfulness practice, sometimes, you know, it helps you kind of, kind of calm down and observe a thought coming into your head, you know, oh, this person is mad at me or, oh, this is going to go badly or whatever. And, and then making a decision about what you're going to do with that thought, whether to, indulge it or to move on. And I think, I think, is it, isn't it true that our brains, um, kind of the neural networks, when we think certain thoughts, especially, especially thoughts that are related to our family of origin or just, you know, maybe we've had traumatic experiences in the past or just ways that we're accustomed to thinking that our brains kind of get used to thinking that way. Like our brains, um, our brains are kind of wired to go through these normal kind of patterns based on some of the stimulus that comes into our life. Like, isn't that true? And so wouldn't mindfulness help us kind of calm down and be a little more objective and, and um, like from a place of truth, kind of evaluate what's going on internally? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's why, that's why ultimately it's ordered towards the deepest, most important truth, which is that we are loved by God. Mm. You know, the, the sort of the, the end of the mindfulness, the Catholic mindfulness program you you arrive at this truth that we're created out of love and we are loved. Mm. And so there's this fundamental, deepest, most important truth is that we're safe and that God loves us and that our our whole our whole life project, our whole journey is about learning how to see the way he sees, which means first of all, seeing ourselves the way he sees us, which is with this fundamental disposition of love and compassion so when we love ourselves we're more in line with truth and then out of that obviously we we need to love others as well but what ends up happening is that even our attempts to love others when we don't love ourselves ends up being some way to sort of fix the problem that we're not lovable Mm. and then you get into all these other weird family dynamics and relational dynamics and and there's you know dependency and co you know codependency and enmeshment and all this other stuff but basically, we need to start off from a fundamental place, knowing that we're loved. That is truth. And and then anything else that happens is is embedded in or founded on that truth. It exists in the world where we're walking on that ground. And and everything else will make sense as a result. So um, I feel like we've done a we've done a pretty good job of kind of outlining the book. But I want to I want to give you a chance to maybe just tell people why. Why they should get this book and what what the book is going to kind of walk through um, for them because I mean obviously it's going to walk through the mindfulness kind of practice but but you're kind of um, maybe infu- I don't know if the word is is um, in you know infusing it with our Catholic faith necessarily than it is just placing it in the context of you know placing this healthy brain exercise and and activity in the context of the greater spiritual um, 
um, context of prayer and truth that we have. I mean, I remember uh, reading that when your when your bishop had read it, you know, they they didn't give. Uh, I think they didn't give the imprimatur or something because they were saying that it it isn't necessarily a a primarily spiritual work, which is important, especially for people who want to say, "Oh my gosh, this is heresy! This is crazy!" Like, um, you know, I I, li- I loved your point about uh, you know that this has to do with just being healthy with your brain, um, not necessarily um, um, some type of spiritual practice. However, it's very exactly. it's, it's very close. It's in the context of our greater spiritual practice. I don't know, I'm meandering, but maybe you could I feel like um I want to give you a chance to kind of to kind of sell the book a little bit and talk about um <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> talk about what, you know, what this is going to go go through for people. Yeah, absolutely. So to to your point, to your analogy earlier about the push-ups, you know, basically the fun, you know, the form of the book and the basis of the book is how to do the better push-up. You know, it's it's not spiritual. Um but I also add in a lot to make it relevant to a Catholic worldview and to help us understand who we are and and where this goes when applied to our faith life and our spiritual life. So the 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 sort of basic framework is the is the mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's the same eight-week protocol that you would take if you do a, a really secular mindfulness program. You'll learn the same things in the actual mindfulness program. That's that's also important to say that and the the way that Kabat-Zinn produced the the original MBSR program, he he kept the Buddhism out of it. Mm. So if if you learn legitimate mindfulness, you're learning just the practice. You're not learning the worldview that it's embedded in. Yeah. So it actually is totally safe and totally fine to practice regular mindfulness. Yeah. The problem is because it's been four decades, there are plenty of practitioners out there that add in the Buddhism. Yeah. And so there are places and times and people who make points and comments about, you know, unite yourself to the universe, realize that the self doesn't exist, you know, like all these different things. And so that's, that's not part of the original mindfulness. Now, what my point is, they should call it Buddhist mindfulness. And that's, if that's the case, if they're actually adding in the Buddhism, call it what it is. Make sure you're telling people what you're doing because you're actually misleading them. If they're looking for regular mindfulness, tell them you're actually giving them Buddhist mindfulness. And that's fine for, you know, if that's what people want to practice, that's on them. Yeah. But be, be honest about what you're doing. Now, when I do it, I say, okay, so I'm not doing regular mindfulness. I'm doing Catholic mindfulness, which means I am giving you the basic stripped down secular mindfulness program, but I'm adding to it a lot of philosophy and spirituality and and meaning behind it that comes from the Catholic faith. So there is a lot of spirituality that's a part of it. But there's nothing there's nothing groundbreaking or new. I mean, I'm basically just quoting a lot from, you know, abandonment to divine providence and some different Carmelite saints and different things like that. You know, practice of the presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Um, and so, so the spirituality that's in the book is nothing new. It's nothing, it's nothing, uh, you know, that's, that's, that needed to be, you know, evaluated or anything like that. It's basically just quoting other books. Yeah. But I place it in, in a context so that while you're learning the mindfulness program, you're, you're seeing how this can actually affect your faith life by being able to focus on the present moment, you're able to actually connect to your faith life more. 
And that's uh, so. So you go through this practice. The first four weeks of the eight weeks is basically just waking up to the reality that we have a mind that works a certain way and it shines a light on the ruminations of the mind mm. and why the brain is doing what it's doing. It explains the sympathetic nervous response. It talks about the effects of cortisol. Why do we go into these different mindsets? Why do we have less perspective and we're more narrow-minded when we feel threatened by something? You know, all that kind of stuff. Then the second half of the course is learning what to do with that knowledge. Mm. And so we learn how we can actually exercise our focus muscle. We can put it into practice in a way that enhances our life. We can wake up to our life in a whole new way and live in a way that we never thought possible. And this is where it just becomes really powerful. So many people feel like they're behind, they're busy, they're swamped, they're overwhelmed. They're, they're doing all these things in their life and they're just always behind trying to catch up. Yeah. And it's, there's nothing about our lives that legitimizes that feeling. And the story I give in the book to explain that is when I was in college, I thought I was really busy and <laughs> I, you know, I had all these assignments yeah. and I was always late and I was scrambling to get stuff done and all this stuff. And then you can already anticipate where this is going. Totally, totally. So, yes, yeah. But you know, then you get to grad school and you look back at college and you think, like, man, I was on vacation for four years. Why? How could I have felt busy? Yeah. Now I'm in grad school. Now I'm really busy. Now this work is so much more. Then you know, then you get into like clinical work. Fourth year, fifth year, you're looking back at the beginning of grad school. How did I feel busy? I I was on vacation. Then you get, you know, you get into the real world. Now you you get a job, you start working. I formed a business. I got married. You, you know, even before kids, I look back at grad school thinking to myself, "Man, I was on vacation. <laughs> How did I feel busy? Now I have to like build a business and sustain a life with my new wife and all this stuff." Then you have a baby. And then forget about it. It's like <laughs> now the whole world changed and now you actually know what busy really is. And everything you thought was busy beforehand is is wrong. Well, so on and so forth. Then you have two kids. One is a dream. Then you have three kids. Two is vacation. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, then you have four kids. You're like, man, I <laughs> I could have done three kids with my eyes closed. I know, you know? I know. So, you, so the point is, at some point, you have to wake up. Yeah. At some point, you realize, wait a minute. Something weird is happening here. Yeah. I, I, it can't be that my my assessment of busy is actually objective and true because yeah. it keeps changing. Yes, yes. So what's wrong is not the circumstances of my life. It's what's going on in my head. Yeah. And this is now finally after two kids, it was somewhere between two and three kids, that clicked for me in a deep, meaningful way. And I started to change everything about my life to the point where I now have four kids I have nine therapists. I have, you know, depending on how you count the books and the courses and all this stuff, like basically like two or three businesses. Yeah. And I feel so much peace in my life. I am not busy at all. Yeah. Anytime people call me, oh, I know you must be so busy. I know you probably don't have any time. I say, no, no, I have time for you. Let's talk. Yeah. You know, we can, you know, so... The way we manage our lives, the way we manage our minds affects the way that we're living our life. And if we can learn how to be in the present moment and not waste all our time 
and waste all our resources in this frantic fight or flight mindset, we discover that we're we're living like 10% of our full capacity. Mm. Mm, yeah, I mean, when we put that into practice, the sky is the limit where this could go. I know. I remember. I remember um, me and my wife wrestling with this a lot. You know, when we had our first kid, it felt like we had. It felt like we had way too many, and and you know, like we were so busy. And but I remember, especially when we had our second, thinking very similar to what you're saying, um, and just constantly thinking of people we knew who had twelve kids, and it almost became this kind of like twelve kid mindset. You know, of like, um, you know someone with 12 kids can do this. So if I have two right. kids, if I have two, like, it's not that they're different. It's not that they're wired different. Like, I don't believe that like, oh, well, they're just, they're just superhuman. Like it, you know, with every successive kid that has been added on, um, we, we've found more, more in our, um, in our tool shed or whatever, like more energy or more, um, more capacity in us. And so, yeah, like realizing, wow, this is totally mindset. If what if I just what if I just woke up, you know, with the four or five kids we have and and uh, and had a twelve kid mindset, you know, how would how would things be different? So I think that's man, that's so important. And so like I remember my wife and I talking so much about this and and me just saying I wish I could gift someone with one child just like the mindset of having four. Like I wish like yeah. like it would be the most it would be the most freeing thing in the world. Like to just not worry about so many things. And, and I feel like that's something you have to go through, but, um, exactly. Yeah, that's it. It's just like the beauty of life and the beauty of the, how God created this thing. Yeah. Which is where you get into this, all, all this stuff with the contraceptive mentality mm. and, you know, this idea of limiting and controlling, and we think that we're doing what was going to make us happy. But at the end of the day, it's not, it's when we let the wildness and the adventure of love in all of its fertility and fruitfulness in every way that that's supposed to take form, when we let it free, it, it's bigger than us mm. and it transforms us. Yeah. When we try to contain it and limit it and control it, then it becomes a distortion of itself and we actually don't become better versions of ourselves. Mm. But it's, it's exactly right. We have to experience it. We have to go through it. We have to let ourselves be challenged and pushed and go through that discomfort, and then it actually transforms us and makes us better, mm. and we become better in all those experiences. So, real, real briefly, and this is this is probably more selfishly for me, but you know, you have you have your own businesses, you're doing your practice, um, you're writing books, you're doing courses, you're doing you're doing a lot of the stuff I really admire, and the and the things um, the things that take up my spare time uh, as well when I'm not when I'm not watching TV, right? Like uh, people are always like asking me, how do you balance everything? And one of the first things I always say is like, I just don't watch TV, <laughs> um, and yeah. these, and these are my hobbies. But maybe uh, a few more more selfish questions. But uh, how long did it take you to write this book? I can imagine. Um, because how long have you been in your practice? Like how long have you been? Um, so since 2003, is that, what, that, that's when you graduated? Or uh, so that, that's when I graduated undergrad and then, uh, I went to the friars and then I went to grad school. So I actually graduated in 2012 with okay. my doctorate. Okay. So, uh, and then I basically started the, the Catholic psych Institute shortly after. And so it's been, it's been since then. Uh, so yeah, going on six years. So was it easy for you to, uh, I mean, was, is this the first book you've written? Yeah. So, so this, this book is, is very organic. I think this is probably, I, I don't want to say this is my best book I'll ever write, but it's, 
I think it's probably my easiest book I've ever written. Yeah. Uh, or that I'll ever write because, um, You've unless been... I just take five years to develop anything else, but I'm already working on a second book and I'm yeah. finding that it's actually, it's harder to write it now that I've written because the first one was very organic. So I started teaching this course three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is I'm sure, I'm sure putting this into practice constantly, it was kind of like, okay, here are the pillars that I want to kind of be in the book. Here's the shape of the book. Yeah, I mean, even the way the book got published is just radically different than in most other people's. Like, I, I started this program. I, I was teaching the class. I was teaching it in person. And then I, uh, you know, I realized I could help a lot more people and spread a lot more of it by recording it and putting it online. Mm -hmm. So I started CatholicMindfulness.com, mm -hmm. which is, you know, where you can actually access the course itself, the eight-week course that I developed integrating Catholicism with mindfulness. And as a result of that, uh, it, it, it just people started talking about it. People were writing articles about it. And then next thing I knew, I had five publishers that were asking me to write a book about Catholic mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So I never thought about writing a book before that. And actually, I had written chapters that go along with the course. Yeah. I had written them as just reading material for people taking the course. Yeah. So it's an eight-week course. I had eight, you know, chat. I called them chat. They, I don't even know if I called them chapters originally. They were just basically PDFs that uh, that were the basically the reading material for this week. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then I was approached and asked by a number of publishers to to write a book. So I was like, oh, I guess I should. I guess I could. You know, uh, maybe it's something to think about. So the whole process. And then once I finally picked the publisher, I already had everything finished. They're like, oh, you have six months to, you know, write the manuscript, send us one sample chapter. I was like, I'm just going to send you the whole book. It's already done. <laughs> you, guys, you guys just want it? Should we get started on this right now? Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was very easy, um, you know, to actually put the book out. And then the editing process was amazing. You know, the team at uh, Beacon, Beacon Publishing, you know, they gave me so many different insights into how to say things differently. You know, it, it was a little bit awkward for me at first to transform a course into a book. Yeah, I bet. So that was the hard part about it was just kind of stepping it back. Yeah. And th stop thinking in this eight week process. Stop thinking in the sort of like, you know, start thinking that there's gonna there are gonna be people who just want to sit down, pick up a book, and read it through. How how much how much did you have to? Because I mean, I mean, I'm very I'm a very tactile. I'm also a book just like I just love books, especially wanting to write books, but I mean, it's only 190 something pages. It's, I mean, to write, I, I, I can just imagine your manuscript, or at least if I were trying to do this, it, you know, the first manuscript being 300 pages, like, did you have to pare it down a lot or, or was it, were you, were you, uh, like how much was, how much did the editors help you kind of pare it back and how much were, were you just really good at being succinct? Um, is she, it, the, the editor was really good at, at helping me pare it back. It wasn't 300 pages, but it, there was definitely, I can, I can tend to be long winded. Um, <laughs> and too. so she, she me helped too. me kind of say like, what's the point? So here yeah. we are, Yeah. here we're going, we're, we're going to end up here with a two hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> the two of us. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, so she did definitely help me pare it down, but again, it was more so the way that I wrote things. Okay. You know, instead of saying like, all right, so next week we're going to cover X, Y, Z or, you know, in the next section, you know, I had to like think more how to streamline it into a, a simpler literary narrative 
that made sense as a book. Okay. Um, so it wasn't so much paring down length as it was really kind of transforming the the way the content was delivered. Okay. Um, and so that that I mean it was it was a little bit. It, it was a little bit awkward at times to try to like figure out how to say things differently without revamping the whole program because I still wanted to keep the sense of yeah you know if you read the book you get a sense of what an MBS uh, M- MBSR program looks like and you can you can certainly read it in an eight week fashion and do one week at a time and do the exercises you get access to the exercises I, I have recorded audio exercises that you can get for free uh, you know download once once you have the book. Yeah. And, you know, so so you can you can do the program as if you're doing an eight week program, but you can also just sit down and read through the book cover to cover in a couple of days if you want to. Um, so so that was that was kind of the tough part about this one. So one last one last kind of question. What what is your morning routine like or maybe put better? What are some of the what are some of the habits, I guess, you know, when it comes to writing or just like the creation of maybe some of these courses or I don't know how much of your website you're kind of doing the construction yourself but when it comes to you know creating for your business or creating for a book or you know kind of that creative process um I mean and you could even go into just you know it could just be like your breakfast and your prayer or your mindfulness practice but what's kind of your your ideal morning routine that really, um, sets your day off really well. Sure. And I, I, I'd be happy to, yeah, I give you the ideal and I just, you know, just to, <laughs> to preface it by saying that it's certainly not what happens every day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, because I don't want to give the impression that I'm some kind of like, you know, perfectly disciplined person here, but my ideal and what I strive for on more days than not is, um, I actually wake up early at four 30 and, um, wait, four thirty. what time know, do you try, go to bed? Uh, usually, usually 10. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The, the, uh, 10 or 10, 11 o'clock at the latest. Yeah. This has been a huge, uh, I've been, I've been, um, uh, yelling about this for a while now because waking up early has kind of changed my life. I've been the earlier, the better, but man, four thirty. you're on another five. If I, ideally, if I wake up at five, man, that's amazing. That's like, I've won the day. Yeah, I you know the thing is it's 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 a this is why I love podcasts. I'm actually you know I've I've been thinking about doing one myself, but I I think when you, you hear stories, and you hear people tell you what they do, it's it just can be really freeing. And yeah. what my sense of, my idea for a podcast is just to like talk to people and just hear stories of my my favorite question is how did you become the man that you are, mm. or how have you become the woman that you are? Yeah. And so it's like this very positive sense of, uh, you know, not, not pride, not, not in a prideful way, but saying like, this is what's working for my life. Yeah. Maybe there are a lot of things that are not working for somebody's life. There's, there are a lot of things that don't work in my life, but like, let's focus on what does work Yeah. because everybody has so much to share about their own human experience. And we can be so inspired and motivated just by knowing that it's possible. So I, I was first listening to a uh, a marketing guru, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh man, huge, and he was huge fan. I'm a huge fan. Oh, awesome. Yeah. He, so he he had this interview with some some other, you know, marketing or, or business whiz, and they were like laughing about 
not waking up at 5 a.m. They were like making fun of people. They they were like, oh, if you're not waking up at 5 a.m., you're just sleeping through your day. Yeah, like, I think I think if that you was... don't get up at five, you you're doing nothing. Yeah, I life. think that was the one. That was the one where they were talking about. <laughs> this guy was telling a story about being with some of his other friends who claimed to be entrepreneurs, and they're like, hey man, like yeah. real 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 talk. Like I get the whole hustle thing, but uh, but why do you wake up so early? And he was yeah. just he was just <laughs> flabbergasted, like, and him him and Gary yeah. just laughing, laughing, like, why why do you wake yeah, up so, so early? <laughs> exactly, and then but you see that, and then it just touches something inside of you if you're open to it. You're like, okay, that's actually a way of life that's possible. Yeah. Then I was talking to another buddy of mine, who who's a, a CrossFit trainer, and he's a big time, you know, big into nutrition and like really really healthy, and. He said, well, I get up at 4.30 every morning. And I was like, wait, he's he's a normal guy? Yeah. He's out at night sometimes. Like, So maybe sometimes you're a little tired. Yeah. But you wake up, you splash some cold water in your face, you hit your coffee, you, 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 you do, you know, and you're just up. And especially with a bunch of kids. And we, we have our, our kids timed really well. We had, <laughs> not, not the baby yet. Yeah. But uh, from, from about one years old up. We have them on this amazing schedule. They're in bed at 6.30, and they wake up at 7 Wow, a.m. That's amazing. So we have more than half the day or usually about half the day where all the kids are sleeping. Yeah, that's amazing. So this is adult time. Yeah, it's like it's a, really it's a beautiful. It's a mini day. Like I, I've been telling it's people. Mini day. Yeah, when I wake up in the morning and I do everything, and then, and then uh, if I wake up super early, and then by the time 9 o'clock comes around, and I'm like, man, I would have just been getting started and look at how much I've done. Like, it's just this mini yeah. day. And and your wife is not mad at you for staying at work late because she's been sleeping, right? right? Like, Okay, so you, wait, so you wake up. I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I want to um, maybe wrap up here soon. But so you wake up at 4.30 and then what's, what's kind of the rest of your ideal morning? Yeah, so the morning usually starts off with a really, really sort of, uh, you know, just trying to to start my day off with prayer. Um, I'll do some like some brief mindfulness, and then pray rosary, and then I'll hit the coffee, and then um, I my, for Lent I was reading more, trying to read more scripture. I want to keep that going, so I was doing the liturgy of the hours, uh, the morning prayer, um, and that's usually about so that whole thing is usually about forty five minutes. So like mindfulness, coffee, prayer. That's about 45 minutes. And then um, then I'll sit down on my computer and I'll start just creating, like whether it's my website, whether it's content, whether it's, you know, Facebook posts that I have to respond to or um, just trying to get in there, returning emails, just trying to sort of do some producing. And for me, it's, you know, I think for everybody, it's hard to maintain a discipline. It's easy to get off on the rabbit hole of, down the rabbit hole of like YouTube videos or stupid things here, there. I mean, watching, love watching some Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. You know, seeing what Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday is telling me about, or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what all these different random things. I love podcasts. I love listening to a lot of stuff, but I'm trying in the morning to do more producing and yeah. creating instead of consuming. Yeah. Are you- so that's, yeah. Do you, do you have any structure about writing? Do you write a lot? I mean, I, I feel bad, but do you? Are you um, doing a lot of blog articles type stuff, or are you just writing on the next book? Um, it's really random. I, I don't really have a lot of structure when it comes to specific content that I'm that I'm working on. I usually yeah. will start off with a list. Yeah. So I'll, you know, when I sit down to get to work, I'll write out my list for what what I what needs to get done for the day, 
uh, and kind of evaluate what the priorities are and then and then just get to work. So every day is very different. Okay, nice. Well, Dr. Greg, I don't want to take any more of your time. This is a great, like, fantastic, fantastic conversation. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell people about? I've put um, links to the Catholic Psych Institute and and your book and all of that in the show notes. There's a ton of amazing show notes. I've just been kind of clipping as we're talking. Um, but is there anything else you want to promote, or where can people find you? Or um, yeah, no, just just catholicpsych.com. It's um, you know, catholic psych.com is is you know, that's my main mission. It's um, you know, we're the reason I formed Catholic Psych is to heal the rift between faith and psychology and I want people to know that it's like you said, it's it's good to to seek help as preventative and at, or as a tune-up. You know, don't wait until you're suffering so bad that you can't think of any other option that you need to finally reach out for help. You know, just like we have, you know, nutrition programs and exercise programs, you know, the the that's what therapy should be. It should be things we do when we're actually doing really well to make ourselves even better instead of just waiting till we're suffocating and dying, feeling like it's it's the only way to to sort of climb out of a hole. Yeah, because part, uh, part, pro- part of the problem is we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> so, exactly. so, so we might not, we, we might be able to, um, you know, with a third party who's kind of trained in this and able to, uh, to kind of just point out, you know, um, problems that might be bigger problems later down the line like the automo the automobile analogy of hey like there's a little bit of a leak here and if you if you go a hundred thousand more miles with this leak like you're gonna have a problem you know six months to a year down the road exactly yeah so it's just yeah i'd love people to check out catholic psych there's a blog there you can read different articles and what the integration of catholicism with psychology looks like um obviously we have catholic mindfulness is kind of like the major fruit of that integration right now but um, really anything there and just, you know, reach out. People have any questions or, or need any kind of help. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Greg. Um, I feel like, man, I, I feel like, uh, I want to have you on the podcast again sometime in the future. I feel like we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, yeah, I, I feel like we're going to get along really well. If you're a Gary Vaynerchuk fan and, uh, <laughs> and everything else, like waking up at four 30, I feel, um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm excited to keep following the things that you're doing and I f- feel like people should check out your book. And yeah, thanks so much for being on. I definitely think you should start a podcast. Hundred percent, you need to start a oh, podcast. I really appreciate that. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have you uh, return the favor. Then you can be my first guest. Oh, hundred percent. And I I'll set you up and everything, man. Because um yeah, I'll get you started. The the kind of workflow that I use is super easy. Um so yeah, I a hundred percent. I think you should put out weekly. But if you're a Gary Vaynerchuk fan, you know that that's probably like what he's constantly telling people to. Everyone's yeah, uh, there's this yeah. big huge bloom, but um. Anyways, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Greg, for for being on. I actually have to run to work. (laughs) Uh, So I have a meeting at nine. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks again, Dr. Greg. And um, all right. Thank you. God bless you. Yeah. I'll get back in touch when the episode's uh, about to go live. Sweet. I look forward to it. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye.